So we're going to start on time. I have the distinct pleasure of introducing Dr. Vanessa Garlick for you. I don't know that she needs a lot of introduction because she's been with us for a few years here and has turned into yet another fantastic pediatrician. I'd like to take some credit, but she's done the job herself. Um, the couple of interesting things I think you need to know about Vanessa is she did her medical school in Australia, which is pretty cool. And even though she was in Sydney, I sort of like to think of Australia as the wilds, and she's had a particular interest in wilderness medicine, has been able to present a poster at, um, at one of the wilderness meetings, which is um, very impressive. That's not what she's going to talk about today, but that's okay. Um, we are very happy that she is remaining in the wilds of New England, and she's going to be working in Montpelier, so <laughs> we get to keep working with Vanessa. Um, so please welcome Vanessa, and um, that's all I have to say. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. So hi, everybody. Um, thank you for coming. I know it's super snowy outside, so I really appreciate you guys being here. Um, today, we will be discussing special diets in the pediatric population. So a few different ideas for Grand, Round topic, Grand Rounds topics had been floating through my head a few months ago when I was on my ambulatory pediatrics rotation. Um, it was the end of the day, and I had back-to-back well-child checks scheduled for a family that was transitioning their care to us after moving from overseas. Before I went into the room, I perused the charts very briefly and was really happy to see that both of the children were tracking along their growth curves just beautifully. Given that it was the end of the day, I was pretty excited to see this. And when I entered the room, I was again reassured. The parents seemed put together, very engaged in the conversation, and the kids looked happy, healthy, and well cared for. As I proceeded with the history, it seemed to be going really well. And then I came to the nutrition section. As I proceeded through this section, the, the parents seemed to tense up more and more. And they eventually said, we're vegan and so are our children. They proceeded to feel the need to qualify their vegan diet to me throughout the rest of the visit, saying, yes, they're vegan, but don't worry, they get enough protein. Yes, they're vegan, but don't worry, they drink their fortified soy milk. When we got to the activity section, they reassured me that their kids were, yes, very active, and yes, they were tired at the end of the day, um, but don't worry, they fed them plenty of snacks through all of their activities. As I left the exam room and walked to the workroom, I was a little alarmed. It seemed like this family was genuinely terrified that I, as their new American pediatrician, was going to try to drown them in bacon and milk. <laughs> However, once I got to the workroom and reviewed my patients with my attendings and co-residents, I realized their fears might not actually be that far off. We were all a little concerned about the lack of animals and their diets. But this didn't seem to fit, because these were actually the healthiest kids I'd seen all day. My previous well-child check had been an only slightly obese 11-year-old boy following the standard American diet, and none of us had really bothered to bat an eyelash at that. However, it is likely that our confusion with nutritional advice is not, that all, not all that uncommon and that these parents might actually have a right to be worried. According to a recent study, the average American medical student receives less than 20 hours of nutritional education throughout their entire medical school career. And most of these hours of education are actually dedicated to basic science, not nutritional, um, practical nutrition advice that we can share with patients. This seems pretty crazy, considering that the top causes of morbidity and mortality in the United States are directly related to diet. With this in mind, I decided to do some nutritional investigation, and that brings me to our objectives. 
So the objectives of today's talk are to define a few special diets that we see in the pediatric population. I'm aware that I'm not covering all of them by any means, but we only have a little less than an hour. So ones that I've chosen are vegetarian diets, vegan diets, gluten-free diets, um, and low-carbohydrate diets. First, I'll attempt to identify the prevalence of each diet and discuss the health benefits and concerns related to each diet. And then hopefully, I'll be able to provide some guidance and recommendations for our children and parents following these special diets. So just a brief outline with very brief definitions that I'll get into in more detail later. Um, but the first diet we'll discuss is the vegetarian diet, which is simply a plant-based diet that avoids the consumption of animal flesh. The second diet is the vegan diet, which is a plant-based diet that avoids all animal products. The third diet will be the gluten-free diet, which obviously just excludes gluten. And the low-carbohydrate diet will be a diet where um, less than 130 grams of carbohydrates are consumed every day. Um, so prevalence of special diets in the United States. This is another reason I'm talking about this, because um, special diets seem to be increasing. Um, we see this in the statistics, but we also see this just anecdotally. Every time we look at our smartphones and peruse our Instagrams and Facebooks, people are taking food selfies and really sharing their dietary preferences. Um, so as you can see, 3% of Americans, 3% of American youth and 3.4% of American adults follow a vegetarian diet. This is actually much higher overseas, so if you have a family coming from um, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, it would be more likely that they were vegetarian. About 10% of people in New Zealand, 11% in Australia, 14% in Switzerland, 18% in Sweden, and 12% in Canada, and up to 40% of people in India follow vegetarian diets. Um, about 1% of American youth and 1.2% of American adults follow a vegan diet, and 2% of Americans without celiac disease follow a gluten-free diet. Um, and we can definitely all attest to that this has been increasing. Um, the gluten-free market has really been exploding from 2014 to 2015. It increased by 136% and continues to rise. Additionally, 18% of Americans are on some form of fad diet at any given time, with the most common types of fad diets being low-carbohydrate diets. So the first diets we will discuss today are the vegetarian and vegan diets. I will. Um, so the vegetarian diet, um, we kind of just defined it a little bit earlier, but I'll just go over it again. So a vegetarian lives on a diet of grains, pulses, legumes, nuts, seeds, vegetables, fruits, fungi, algae, and yeast with or without um, dairy products, honey, and or eggs. A lot of people get confused about the vegetarian diet, and that's because there's lots of different degrees of vegetarianism. Um, the first type of vegetarian is the lacto-ovo vegetarian, and this is the most common type of vegetarian. So typically when people tell you that they're a vegetarian, this is what they mean. Um, it means that they eat both eggs and dairy products, um, but they do still abstain from eating animal flesh. And there's the lacto-vegetarian who eats dairy products but not eggs, and the ovo-vegetarian who eats eggs but not dairy products. And then we have the um, most strict form of vegetarian, which is the vegan, and they do not eat any animal products, so no eggs, no dairy, and sometimes even no honey. And this one is distinctly different from the other three because of the complete exclusion of animal products, so we will discuss them a little differently. 
Um, is it safe? So just like anything that we recommend in medicine, and particularly pediatrics, we want to assess whether or not it, whether it is safe um, before we condone it or even recommend it. So the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, along with the Academy, the American Academy of Pediatrics, agree that vegetarian and vegan eating patterns are healthy for infants, children, and adolescents. One way that we often assess the safety of something in pediatrics is to look at kids' growth, um, because we're very tied to this as pediatricians, but we can be reassured that the physical growth and sexual maturation of vegetarian and vegan children has been repeatedly shown to be within the normal range, although vegetarian children do, on average, tend to be slightly leaner than their omnivorous counterparts. So there were multiple small studies before this study, but this was the first large study um, called the FARM study that assessed the growth of vegan children. Um, it was published in Pediatrics in 1989. Um, and so it's an older study, but again, it was the first larger study. So it's often referenced in the literature, and we will discuss it today. So the children in this study lived on a, place, an, a collective community called The Farm, which was essentially a hippie commune located in Tennessee um, that was a little unique in the socioeconomic structure because um, most of the people living on the farm were highly educated, but they were actually quite poor because they were not obtaining financial gain from outside of the community. Um, most of the kids on the farm had lived there since birth, were white, and the people on the farm um, were vegan. So they were a pretty good study population to do this on. Basically what the researchers did were they obtained height and weight data collected, and they collected it between 1980 and 1984, um, and compared the height and weight data to National Center for the Health Statistics and CDC um, normative data um, for the reference population by age and sex for growth. So we have height here first, um, and you can see we have on we have boys on the left and girls on the right. The y-axis on each of these graphs is height in centimeters, and the x-axis on each of these graphs is age in years. Um, and then we have the lines going up on the graph, and those represent um, percentiles of the normative population starting with the 95th centile to the 75th centile to the 50th centile, 25th, and 5th. And then the little dots on the graph represent um, the mean heights of the farm population. And then the lines extending from the dots are the error bars representing one standard deviation in each direction of the mean for the farm children's height. Um, as you can see, the uh, farm children tend to track right along the 50th centile um, for age or for height, um, with the exception of the younger ages, so ages one to three. They are um, slightly shorter than the reference population, although still within normative reference um, parameters. So next, we have a weight for age. Um, and this is some, set up very similarly. So again, we have boys on the left and girls on the right. We have a weight in kilograms on the y-axis and um, age in years on the x-axis again. So again, we have the um, centiles going up, and again, you see the dots representing the means with the error bars in each direction. Here you can see um, the only reliable differences we're seeing at ages 9 and 10, and for the most part, the children, again, tracked right along the 50th centile um, 
for weight. So at ages 9 and 10, they did, were reliably smaller um, than the reference population. And then we have weight for height. This time, again, we have boys on the left, girls on the right. Um, we have weight in kilograms on the y-axis this time and um, height in centimeters on the x-axis this time. And this shows exactly what you would expect given the other two graphs, um, just that the kids, since they were a little shorter but the same weight, they have a greater weight for height at the younger ages. Um, so the overall results of this study, um, you see all these numbers look negative, but they're only slightly negative. The only reliable differences we're seeing, again, at the young ages for height and the older ages for weight. And by ages 9 and 10, the farm population only averaged 0.7 centimeters shorter and 1.1 kilograms smaller than the reference population, representing 0.1 and 0.3 standard deviations from the mean. Um, so in general, the researchers felt that the study group of children raised on the vegan diet was similar to that of the reference population. And the mean height for age and weight for age were slightly less than the median of the reference population generally. Um, but the only reliable differences, again, were seen at ages 1 and 3 for height and weight at ages 9 and 10. They had three possible theories as to why the kids um, were a little shorter at those younger ages. The first theory was that the weaning foods in the vegan diet might be slightly less calorically dense than weaning foods in the omnivorous diet, um, particularly in this population where the parents were quite poor. Their second um, possibility was that the farm children were exclusively breastfed, whereas the normative population um, was more often to be formula-fed. And then the third reason they felt that could be it could be due to the fact that the um, reference growth curves were based on two different data sets. So they used the FELS data for ages 0 to 2, and then they used the U.S. representative data for ages 2 and older. And between those two different populations, there were significant height differences, um, and they hypothesized that had those irregularities um, not existed, the differences would have been smaller at those younger ages. Um, so in conclusion, according to the results of the study, with attention to, or the conclusion drawn from the study was that um, with attention to weaning foods and nutrition intake, um, children raised on a vegan diet can achieve adequate growth. So now that we've established that vegan and vegetarian diets can support adequate growth and development, children following these diets, like all children, still need careful planning of their diets to meet their nutritional needs. So uh, common nutrient concerns when people talk about a vegetarian diet, both for providers and parents, tend to be these particular nutrients, so B12, calcium, protein, and iron. It's not to say that these aren't people's only concerns, but considering these tend to be the most common ones, we'll talk about them today, and then if we have any additional ones, we can talk about them after. Um, so... Um, Infants, so vegan and vegetarian babies, that might sound a little crazy, but we'll call them that because that's um, their diet has been dictated by the parents. And so for all intents and purposes at this time in their life, that's 
what they are. Um, and they're no different than omnivorous infants and in that we recommend exclusive breastfeeding for them for the first six months of life. Um, if they are vegan and not going to use a cow-based formula, then it's really important that they actually use a commercial soy-based formula and not use a homemade um, formula because most of the case reports you see about um, a vegan and vegetarian babies failing to thrive is because they are on some sort of homemade formula, which is probably well-intentioned, well, um, but something that we need to try to avoid. Um, another common concern is the breast milk of vegetarian and vegan women. Um, the nutrients, what we know about breast milk is that the nutrients in human milk that are most sensitive to diet are vitamins A, C, D, and the B group. Um, mineral content, cholesterol content, um, and fat content are not that significantly affected by maternal diet. Um, so all breast milk, whether vegetarian, vegan, or omnivorous, is low in vitamin D. So vegetarian and vegan babies, just like um, omnivorous babies, need to be supplemented with vitamin D. Vegan mothers, <clears throat> this is where the difference arises. Is um, So if a vegan mother is not taking a B12 supplement, that, then it's very important that we supplement the baby with B12. Most vegan mothers are aware of this recommendation, but it's still something you'd want to pay attention to. Um, and that said, that supplement needs to be continued throughout the life of the vegan child. So people who eat a vegan diet need to be on a B12 supplement. Um, another difference between breast milk and of vegan mothers and non-vegan mothers is DHA content. So DHA levels in vegan breast milk are lower than that in omnivorous breast milk, um, but still higher than in commercially, commercially available formulas that are not fortified with DHA. The significance of this is relatively controversial. Um, so DHA is found in retina cells and the brain, and it's been associated with um, improved psychomotor development and visual acuity at ages at age four months. Whether or not this advantage persists throughout life has been what's been controversial. A recent Cochrane review, a recent Cochrane review published in 2014, did not um, support the routine supplementation of commercial formula with DHA. However, that's not to say that we might not discover that it is important somewhere down the line. If vegan mothers wish to improve the DHA in their babies, there are certain foods that they can eat, um, but we can discuss that later if anybody's interested. So um, like, just like omnivorous children that we see in clinic, we don't recommend um, that vegan or vegetarian babies be switched over to a commercial or to a non-formula or breast milk before the age of 12 months. And when they are switched over um, from formula or breast milk, we, if they're avoiding dairy products, recommend soy milk rather than rice milk or almond milk um, because the other almond milk and rice milk do not have um, the caloric density or nutrient density of soy milk. So that's something to keep in mind as well. Speaking of milk, that brings us to calcium. Um, so what we know is that lacto-ovo-vegetarian, so the average vegetarian is very similar in their calcium intake to um, omnivorous children because they're still um, eating dairy. Um, but calcium intake of vegan children has been shown to be lower. That said, if calcium intake is the same, um, bone mineral density and fracture risk are the same across cohorts. So what we really need is that the vegan children to find other places in their diet to get calcium from, which is certainly possible. Um, so we have common foods um, listed 
on the left and um, the calcium EAR and calcium RDA listed on the right by age. So the calcium EAR is simply the amount of calcium recommended so that at least 50% of the population would meet their needs. And then the calcium RDA is really what we use for recommendations because it goes to two standard deviations above that and encompasses the needs of 98% of the population. So typically when we're talking about guidelines, these are what we're following. And it's important to keep in mind that the calcium um, guidelines for the United States are actually pretty high um, in comparison to other countries. Um, but anyways, those are our goals. So if you look at the foods... Um, here you can see that calcium fortified cereals are very high in calcium. I actually didn't realize this until I did this, but you could essentially get all of your calcium from a bowl of calcium fortified cereal if you really wanted to do that. Um, but other sources of calcium are soy milk, um, fortified almond milk, um, and then you can see you can get calcium from your leafy vegetables and black beans. Um, and it's important to keep in mind that we don't necessarily think that dairy is the optimum source of calcium. And in fact, um, calcium absorption from vegetables is about 52 to 56% versus cow's milk, which is only about 32%. So it's not saying that cow's milk is a superior source of calcium. It's just the most easily available for our kids in the community to get. Um, so as you can see, this is a... Um, smorgasbord of food that would allow you to get your calcium intake throughout the day if you wanted to avoid dairy products. Um, you could get all of the calcium you needed from some spinach, an orange, calcium-fortified cereal, a handful of almonds, and a glass of soy milk and still be okay. Obviously, this is not everything you would be eating throughout the day, so it's likely that you would additionally get more calcium from the other food that you were eating incidentally, even if it wasn't deemed a calcium-rich food. So the take-home about calcium is that lacto-ovo-vegetarian children can be treated very similarly to omnivorous children. That doesn't mean we don't need to worry about them because what we see in studies is that most children in the United States are below the guidelines in their intake. Um, and then vegan children we should pay extra attention to, but they can um, still get enough calcium with a diet rich in fruit and vegetables and other fortified foods. So iron, a lot of people also worry about iron, which is um, definitely not unfounded considering it is the most common nutritional deficiency in the world. Um, it's certainly a problem for non-vegan and vegetarian children um, as well as vegan and vegetarian children. While iron deficiency has never been consistently shown to be more common in vegetarians than non-vegetarians, most, but most but not all studies do show an overall pattern of lower iron stores in vegetarian and vegan children than omnivorous children, um, with no difference in rates of iron deficiency anemia. So interestingly, studies repeatedly show that overall iron intake is significantly greater among vegetarians than non-vegetarians and up to almost twice as much in most studies. Um, this is actually a very good thing because non-heme iron is not as bioavailable as heme iron. Um, the bioavailability difference so sorry, just to clarify, so non-heme iron is iron that you obtain from a plant source, and then heme iron is the iron that you obtain from an animal source. We know that non-heme iron, so plant-based iron, is not as well-absorbed. It's unclear exactly um, how much less well-absorbed it is, but studies estimate about 1.8 times. So heme iron is about 1.8 times greater absorbed than non-heme iron. Um, 
So it is good that the vegetarian children are intaking almost twice as much iron as the non-vegetarian children. Studies also show that vitamin C intake in vegan and vegetarian children is about 30 to 40 percent time, 30 to 40 percent um, greater in vegetarian children than non-vegetarian children. So again, we have a similar setup that we did with the calcium. We have the um, RDAs listed on the right um, by age. It's important to note here, due to the difference in bioavailability of heme versus non-heme iron, that these are values for assuming that the person is eating an omnivorous diet. So if they are eating only a plant-based diet, you need to multiply these numbers by 1.8 to get enough iron. Um, and then the foods we have listed here have their iron content. So again, you can see there are plenty of foods that are not meat-based that are high in iron. And again, we have a similar thing. So above, you can see a variety of foods that together give a total of 27 milligrams of iron, which is the amount of iron needed for a vegetarian menstruating teenager who has the greatest iron needs. Obviously, she would eat much more than this again throughout the rest of the day. So it's likely she could get incidentally iron from other things. So this is just um, some white beans some spinach, some bright colored vegetables, um, quinoa, cashews, and a tablespoon of pumpkin seeds. So the take home about iron. Um, so close attention should be paid to the iron content of the diets of all children. And vegetarian children can obtain <coughs> adequate iron from their diets, but we do need to pay attention to it. And screening tests for iron deficiency anemia should be performed according to the AAP schedule for all children. Another question, so most vegetarians probably get this question almost regularly, where do you get your protein? So where do these kids get their protein? Um, many people feel that fear that on a vegetarian or vegan diet that protein requirements will not be met. Um, however, given that protein deficiencies are virtually never seen in an otherwise healthy person living in the developed world, this is a very perplexing concern. Um, and in fact, the average American gets up to two to three times the um, RDA of protein. So, but part of this concern may actually arise from the conventional teaching about amino acids. So as we might recall, there are 20 common amino acids. Of these 20 common amino acids, um, nine of them are deemed to be essential, meaning that our body cannot synthesize them on our own and we have to obtain them from dietary sources. We consider animal proteins to be complete proteins, meaning that animal proteins that we consume contain all nine amino acids in one serving, versus plant proteins, which we see as incomplete, meaning they can contain a few of the amino acids, but not all of them in one source, with the exception of soy. So um, there used to be a concern that vegetarians needed to plan their meals in order to get a complete protein at each meal. But we now know that this is not necessary um, because your body has the ability to store these amino acids. So as long as you're eating a variety of foods, you do not need to worry about a protein deficiency. So the only time we would really see a protein deficiency is if we have a child on one plant-based food. So like in a developing country where the entire diet is corn, you could get a protein deficiency there. Or in the developing country where the only source of food is a potato, then again, you could see a protein deficiency. But in the developed world, this isn't something that we really need to worry about. Here are the recommended daily um, protein requirements. Um, and again, so they're actually not that high, and the average American consumes about two to three times this. Um, you can see that the highest requirement is in the younger ages. Um, 
and then, but still relatively easy to meet. Um, so the protein content of common foods. So we see that, yes, meat definitely has a lot of protein, but so do black beans, chickpeans, um, nuts, and um, other forms of plant-based food. And just for a reference point, right here on this slide is all the protein that an adult male would need, actually more than an adult male would need to meet his protein requirements for the whole day. So this is 60 grams of protein and a handful of chickpeas, two slices of wheat bread, a cup of wheat pasta, half a cup of oats, a tablespoon of almond butter, some corn, and some broccoli. So the take-home point about protein is that if vegetarian and vegan diets are varied, um, so if they're not just eating white pasta um, and um, they meet their caloric needs, there's no protein, there's no need to worry about their protein intake in general. So um, traditionally, research into vegetarianism has been very similar to this presentation in that it is focused mainly on potential nutritional deficiencies. But in recent years, the pendulum has really swung on this, um, and studies are confirming the health benefits of meat-free eating. Nowadays, plant-based diet is recognized as not only nutritionally sufficient, but also as a way to reduce the risk of many chronic illnesses. While we might not classically think of chronic illnesses as diseases of childhood, we definitely can all agree that we are seeing them creep into our pediatric population and that it's our job as healthcare providers to set these kids up for healthy futures. Um, so rather than being nutrient deficient, overall, vegetarian and vegan, children's are, vegan children are more likely to meet their healthy people goals set forth by the government for macro and micronutrients um, than non-vegetarian children. Um, in general, vegetarians have lower LDL cholesterol, lower blood pressure, lower BMI, lower rates of obesity, and a lower risk of cardiac events and death from cardiac disease than um, non-vegetarians, which seems like a pretty big disease considering um, it's the number one killer of Americans and a reduced risk of type 2 diabetes and a reduced overall risk of cancers. So in summary, it is the position of the American Dietetic Association that appropriately planned vegetarian and vegan diets are healthful, nutritionally adequate, um, and may provide health benefits in the prevention and treatment of chronic diseases. Well-planned vegetarian diets are appropriate for all individuals of all stages of the life cycle, including pregnancy, lactation, infancy, childhood, and adolescence, and for athletes. So now we will shift gears a little bit and talk about the gluten-free diet. So the gluten-free diet, as you can assume, is a gluten is a diet without gluten. And gluten is just a composite of storage proteins found in wheat, barley, rye, and related species. And it's what helps give gives foods that nice shape. Um, there are certainly medical indications for the gluten-free diet, celiac disease, and wheat al allergy, and then more controversial non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Um, so celiac disease is an immune-mediated inflammatory disease of the small intestine caused by um, sensitivity to dietary gluten. It is distinctly different from wheat allergy, which is a more traditional type of food allergy, um, which is an allergy to wheat and is usually IgE-mediated, although not always. Um, people with a wheat allergy can sometimes eat food other than wheat containing gluten, but it depends on the severity of the allergy, and it's something that they should talk to their allergist about. 
Um, Non-celiac gluten sensitivity is a different entity, and it's based on self-reported GI symptoms with ingestion of gluten with no lab or biopsy-proven abnormalities seen. The evidence for non-celiac gluten sensitivity is conflicting, um, so we will have to wait and see what we eventually find there. So if those are... we allergy and celiac disease are the only true medical indications for the avoidance of gluten. Why is it that everyone wants to go gluten-free? Well, polling shows that um, the number one reason for people going gluten-free right now is the perceived health benefit. So people just see gluten-free foods as being healthier than the alternative. Um, Some people say that they are doing it for weight loss. And then there are a myriad of other conditions, which some people believe can be treated um, with a gluten-free diet, including ADHD, autism, rheumatoid arthritis, and other inflammatory conditions. So is it safe? So people with celiac disease have been eating a gluten-free diet for decades. It was first discovered by a Dutch pediatrician in 1941 after he noticed that his patients had actually improved significantly during the bread shortages, I'm sorry, of World War II, during the bread shortages, and then decompensated relatively quickly when Allied troops dropped bread back off. Um, So since about the 1940s and 1950s, people have been on a gluten-free diet, and we know that people with celiac disease live for a long time on this diet. It's difficult to extrapolate from from studies on morbidity and mortality of patients with celiac disease because they have an underlying disease state. Um, But we can probably deduce that since people with celiac disease live for a long time on this diet, that it's not immediately dangerous to their health. Um, Is it harmful in the long term? So that's a little um, more confusing, but basically people on a gluten-free diet have a higher intake of saturated fat and sucrose and a lower intake of dietary fiber on average. This is probably because gluten-free products contain more saturated fat, sucrose, and sodium and less dietary fiber than non-gluten-free products to um, make up for that lack of gluten. This is... Studies in adults on a gluten-free diet without celiac disease found that these people had a higher risk of heart disease and a higher and an increased risk of obesity and metabolic syndrome. Unfortunately, there are no studies on children on a gluten-free diet without celiac disease. Um, that said, we can see that the gluten-free industry is really trying to market foods as looking healthier um, when they're gluten-free. So we have good thins rather than the traditional wheat thins, which are gluten-free. And then we have Ian's um, gluten-free snacks, which are made with trust. And so you can see that in general, they're really trying to look like they're healthier. But if you actually look at the nutrition facts on the side, this is actually often not the case. Um, so you can see from the difference of the just traditional Triscuit versus the gluten-free um, whole wheat or multigrain cracker, you can see that the multigrain cracker that's gluten-free is actually higher in saturated fat, higher in sugar, almost has three times as much sodium, but has no fiber and less protein. Um, so whole grains containing gluten that are avoided on the gluten-free diet include wheat, barley, rye, and often oats. Um, oats themselves do not contain, contain gluten, but they are often cross-contaminated. So unfortunately, these are some of the most readily available whole grains um, for kids to be eating. That doesn't mean they aren't the only whole grains. So if a person is going to be on a gluten-free diet, it's important that they seek out other whole grains. So other whole grain alternatives would include, um, here we have 
rice, millet, quinoa, and oats that are not cross-contaminated. So if you have a family wanting to do a gluten-free diet, it's important that you emphasize um, finding other sources of whole grains. So is it healthful? Um, unfortunately, there is no compelling evidence that a gluten-free diet will improve your health if you don't have celiac disease. Um, so burdens of the gluten-free diet. Quality of life data um, around the gluten-free diet has really been in patients with celiac disease. So again, it's difficult to extrapolate. These people, unfortunately, have a chronic disease, so it's probably clouding that a little bit. Um, but people on a gluten-free diet with celiac disease do um, find the disease or the diet to be rather burdens, like high, a high burden and cost access availability um, and really reduce enjoyment when you go out to eat and you have to be very meticulous about the way your food is prepared. So a summary of the gluten-free diet. So there's no data to support um, health benefits of transitioning to a gluten-free diet in the absence of celiac disease or wheat allergy. If families do choose to be on a gluten-free diet, they need to make sure that they're paying a special attention to still getting um, nutritionally rich food and whole grains. And choosing a gluten-free diet is not without harm. So it is more costly. It can be socially and emotionally difficult. And while this is probably worth it in celiac disease, it might not be worth it if you don't have celiac disease. So lastly, we will talk about low-carbohydrate diets. This might not seem like an innately pediatric topic. However, we do have lots of adolescents and young adults going on low-carb diets. Um, in the pursuit of weight loss. And additionally, there are lots of adults on low-carbohydrate diets, um, and they're often the ones preparing meals for the kids. So um, the low-carbohydrate diet, as I alluded to earlier, is just a diet that contains less than 130 grams of carbohydrates per day, which is essentially the RDA for carbohydrates. So if you're getting less than that, it's considered a low-carb diet, and a very low-carbohydrate diet is less than 60 grams per day. In general, um, commonly accepted dietary guidelines recommend that we get about 45 to 65% of our calories um, from carbohydrates. And as you can see, carbohydrate does not just mean simple sugar. So on this healthy eating plate, which has pretty much replaced the pyramid of the 1990s, um, you can see that vegetables, fruits, and whole grains make up about 75% of that plate. While not all of those foods are 100% carbohydrates, it's still a lot of carbohydrates, and those are nutrient-dense foods. So if you exclude all of those foods, you're definitely missing out on some nutrients. So is it safe? The Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics does not recommend a low-carbohydrate diet for young children, preteens, or even high schoolers. Um, Carbohydrate-rich foods, again, such as whole grains, fruits, vegetables, and milk, are key sources of calcium, fiber, and vitamin D in these kids' diets. Um, and diets that severely restrict all of these foods um, place these kids at risk of nutrient deficiencies, um, which can lead to immediate symptoms such as constipation and lack of energy. But if they're on a severely restricted carbohydrate diet for a long time, this can impact growth. That said, not all carbohydrates are created equally. So again, we need to emphasize getting the right kind of carbohydrate um, and not just cakes and cookies and candies. So popular carbo low carbohydrate diets right now, there are quite a few of them, but I just chose these three to talk about because they seem like the most topical in the media and um, the literature at the moment. So we have the Atkins diet, the ketogenic diet, and the paleo diet. So 
the Atkins diet um, is really the first low-carbohydrate diet that was mainstream. It was developed in 19, the 1960s um, by Robert Atkins, who's a cardiologist. Um, and it was a diet with a significant emphasis on carbohydrate restriction and with an emphasis on um, high protein and high fat. So it's a phasic diet, and depending on your weight loss goals, you start at different phases. But the first couple of phases are very severely restrictive, um, with the first phase being that only 10% of your calories can come from carbohydrates. The motivation for this diet is pretty much exclusively weight loss. The safety. So Atkins spokespeople, and you will find on their website, say that this diet is very safe for children. Um, however, none of the sources that they cited could I couldn't find. So I would say that the evidence is relatively limited on this diet for kids. And the pros of this diet are that we certainly do see um, a rapid weight loss with severe carbohydrate restriction. Um, however, that weight loss is typically not maintained over time better than in any other diet. The cons of this diet, again, are what we talked about, so nutritional deficiencies, fiber, and vitamins, and the side effects of these diets. So in the first phases of these diet, the first couple phases of this diet are very restrictive, so you're actually in a state of ketosis, so you get the side effects of ketosis, including headache, dizziness, weakness, fatigue, and constipation. Which brings us to our next diet, which is the ketogenic diet. The ketogenic diet is another low-carbohydrate diet, but it is distinctly different from the Atkins diet in that it is a really a high-fat, low-carb diet. So this diet emphasizes getting 75 to 90% of your calories from fat and about 10 to 20% of your calories from protein, with 0 to 5% being from carbohydrates, with the goal of staying in a constant state of ketosis. And in order to ensure this, people will check their urine ketones. The motivation for this diet is really um, weight loss. And is it safe? So we've known about the ketogenic diet for a long time because it's been used to treat intractable epilepsy in children. And in those children, we find that they can have poor growth if they're not monitored closely by a multidisciplinary team due to the restrictiveness of the diet. So kids should not go on this diet unless they're being monitored um, by a nutritional professional, such as a registered dietitian. Um, and even then, it seems unwise to be on this diet for a long time. And the pros of this diet, again, are initial rapid weight loss. And the cons are that it's very difficult to follow. And again, you get the um, side effects of ketosis, including halitosis, vomiting, fatigue, and constipation. People on this diet do say that these side effects will go away over time or at least decrease. And there are lots of people on this diet. You'll see the Kardashians, but even groups of physicians are on this diet right now. Okay. And lastly, we have the paleo diet. So people might not um, immediately recognize the paleo diet as a low-carb diet, but the founder of the diet, Lauren Cordain, who's written most of the books about it, um, does define it as a low-carbohydrate diet. And if you look at the macronutrient breakdown, it is actually a low-carb diet. Um, it is based off of a diet eaten in the Paleolithic era. Um, however, people have criticized this diet, saying that it actually probably is very little like what people ate during that time period. Um, but either way, it still has that um, surrounding it. So the motivation for this diet is slightly different than the other diets. Um, and that it's really a perceived healthy diet and a way to be healthful, um, and it has a real and it has a movement surrounding it. 
the people that founded this diet don't claim that you'll wait, lose weight immediately and say that it can take up to six months. So it's not usually perceived or pursued as a way to lose weight rapidly. The safety. Um, so the paleo diet in an attempt to eat like our ancestors excludes all dairy, all legumes, and all whole grains. So if you're doing that, um, you're excluding a lot of nutrients, particularly calcium. So people worry that for children, this might not be a great way for them to get all of their calcium. Additionally, it's very high in recommendations for meat intake. So you can see the whole bottom of the pyramid is actually meat with no limitations on red meat consumption, which we know is linked to cardiovascular disease and cancers. The pros of this diet are that you can see this one um, come through with pretty pictures on your Instagram often. Mm -hmm. It's really like about clean eating and not eating packaged and processed foods, which is definitely a good principle to go by. Um, and additionally, it does have a large movement and community support around it. So people are able to follow this diet for a longer period of time than some of the other more restrictive diets. The cons are that because it's so meat heavy and this meat isn't just any meat, it's supposed to be grass-fed, free-range, um, antibiotic-free meat, that it can be very expensive. Um, and then again, since it has such a large meat content, um, it has been criticized for having a very large environmental footprint. So a summary of low-carbohydrate diets. All children need um, carbohydrates, so restrictive carbohydrate diets are not recommended um, for kids. And that said, not all carbohydrates are equal, and we really should place an emphasis on whole grains, fruits, and vegetables. So you can see here, um, these are very nutrient-dense foods that are also very high in carbohydrates. So this is where we should be getting our carbohydrates, not from here, which would not be good choices. So Pop-Tarts, fast food products, um, packaged foods, even if they're organic and pretty, are probably still not our best choice. And a recap of the day. So today we talked about the vegetarian diet, we talked about the vegan diet, we talked about the gluten-free diet, and we talked about the low-carbohydrate diet. Some conclusions from today's talk um, is that all children, adolescents, all infants, children, and adolescents need um, close, close time and attention paid to the planning of their diets. And vegetarian and vegan diets are safe and healthy for children. Gluten-free diets are only proven for people with celiac disease, and we need to pay close attention to their whole grain intake if they're going to follow it regardless. Um, and while attention to carbohydrate quality is certainly important, total carbohydrate avoidance is not generally recommended. So some tips for providers. Um, this is just practical advice. When you're seeing a family for the first time or maybe the second or the third time, it's really important to get a thorough history of exactly what they are and not they are eating and what they are not eating if they're on a special diet. So as we see, the definitions of different diets can be um, a little blurry, and people might mean different things when they say different things. Um, so it's important to get a really accurate history so you can provide guidance. It's also important to ask um, for the incentive, the incentive of the dietary preference. So when somebody says they want to go on a gluten-free diet to lose weight, you might want to tell them that that is probably not the best option. Um, additionally, you want to make sure that their goals are safe. And if a diet is very restrictive or unfamiliar, it's always appropriate to reach out um, to somebody who is more experienced, like a registered dietitian. 
Fortunately here, um, we do have a great team of dietitians. There are nine subspecialty clinics with dedicated RDs and Maura Jones is available um, for outpatient referrals for things like failure to thrive, picky eating, um, and families who need help with weight management. Additionally, through um, making this talk, I found some really helpful resources that might be helpful to providers, including the Harvard School of Public Health, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, and the Vegetarian Resource Group, um, because there's a lot of literature out there. So when you are doing literature searches, it can get very overwhelming very quickly. And that's all I have for you guys today. So thank you very much. I didn't actually see a lot on that, um, but that doesn't mean that it's not out there. So I can't really comment on that in a knowledgeable way. I'm sorry, but I'll look into it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Jolene? I'm wondering about um, supplements because uh, I've always been taught that with supplements, people don't they feel like, okay, I'm getting my calcium iron or whatever. I don't need to eat healthily. So that's one drawback. Absorption's not as good, but of course it's in mega doses. So, um, and then I don't think anyone with children should have a stockpile of iron in their house if they can avoid it. But, um, yeah. but I guess I don't really. Um, if you are worried about someone's diet, maybe one of the first things you could do is supplements while you work on the diet. But I don't know what the what the right thing is, and how if you came across anything about dietary supplements like just taking calcium and pills and things like that. Yeah, so I think that you're right in that it's not ideal to take a calcium supplement or an iron supplement um, if you can get it from your diet. But if you are truly worried about either of those, a relatively low-dose supplement is okay for kids. But again, working on the diet would definitely be the um, optimum. I'm not sure. I didn't see anything about, like, if you start giving a supplement, is a person less likely to change their diet because they think that there are don't need to make the change at that point. Um, so I'm not sure about that. Um, Trisha? Um, you had given a percentage, or uh, you mentioned something about some kids being calcium deficient. Mm -hmm. I tend to feel like kids drink so much milk and eat so much cheese and yogurt, and like it's, it's a big part of their diet, so I don't worry about it as much. Can you tell me more about whatever statistic you said or like what the yeah. evidence is there? Um, so I can't remember the exact statistic, but it was pretty much... Um, par for the course that most children tend to be defined as like not getting the intake of calcium, like over 50% in most studies um, of omnivorous children. But if you look at the RDA for calcium, it's actually pretty high. So it's like 1,300 milligrams of calcium, which is, you know, more than four eight-ounce glasses of milk a day. So that's actually quite a lot of calcium. And studies show that are like looking at fracture risk and bone mineral density, the cutoff that they use is 500 a day. So it's possible that they are 
meeting the necessary amount for them, but they're not technically meeting the um, defined criteria. So yeah, I agree with you. It seems like lots of kids are eating, are getting tons of meat or milk and cheese, um, but still, I don't know how, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, Dr. Ringer. Thanks for that. So this was really a great review. I, it strikes me, though, that so much of pediatrics is advocacy, and in the area of nutrition, we always seem to be fighting a battle against popular culture and manufacture. Right? I mean, I mean, you showed unhealthy foods. You included Annie's mac and cheese, but I think there are a lot of people out there who say, "Oh no, it's Annie's. That's okay." <laughs> They're sweet potatoes. Yeah. Yeah. That's really hard. I think a lot of education is really important because you're right. Looking at those boxes, if it's green and says organic and gluten-free on it, it definitely looks healthier than the craft alternative. Um, but again, it's not. So I think just really education with families looking at nutrition labels and how to read nutrition labels is probably really important. Amr? Um, I think you really try to present them with a very impartial lens, all the diets. Um, one question I had was, um, with vegan diets, two concerns that come up, as opposed to a vegetarian diet, mm -hmm. sometimes they seem to get lumped together, is the uh, increased risk of bone uh, fractures in, in vegan diets, um, up to two or three times because they go dairy-free. And um, despite supplementation, there still seems to be a correlation for increased bone risk. And the other one is more on the practical end, is the association with vegan diets leading in adolescents uh, to a higher risk of eating disorders. Did you come across that? Okay. So with the calcium one, I've, and what I found, it was that if they were getting the amount, they did have a higher risk of fracture um, if they were not getting their calcium intake, which was more common to not get the calcium intake in the vegan diet. But the studies that I looked at showed that they did have equal bone mineral density and less, or in the same fracture risk um, if they were getting the right amount of calcium from their diet. So I think the best way to manipulate that is to make sure they get enough calcium. With the eating disorder, that thing that definitely comes up a lot, but not just with the vegan diet, with the vegetarian diet in general. Um, and what the literature showed there was that typically the eating disorder the eating disorder is present before the desire to go vegan or vegetarian. So the desire is for a restrictive diet in general, and a way to do that is to put a label on it, like a vegan or vegetarian diet. So it's important to certainly ask for the reasoning for going vegan or vegetarian with particularly an adolescent or a teenager, um, but it doesn't, there was no um, reverse in the data, so no evidence to show that going vegan made you develop an, an eating disorder, but rather perhaps sometimes choosing a vegan or vegetarian diet could be a red flag showing that there's an underlying disorder. 
Um, yeah. One of the things that I get a lot, like when I eat plant-based sort of like alternatives that contain soy. So I think that like this day and age, it is easier for us to get a good amount of protein. But one of the most common things that people ask me is how I feel about soy. And like as a dietitian, I feel like I should have a stance on this, but there's a lot of conflicting research and I wasn't sure if you found anything on that or had a perspective. Yeah, so um, that did come up. In my research, and I was really worried when I looked up soy that I was going to find a landmine of terrible things based on the questions that people were asking me, like, does it make you more likely to be homosexual or more likely to not go through puberty? Um, fortunately, I did not find any evidence to support that. Um, and what I found about soy is that because it's high in isoflavins, which um, are phytoestrogens, which have estrogenic properties, um, there is a lot of concern about it around different cancers. Um, but really, it's perceived more to be a health benefit than a health risk, which I was actually kind of surprised about because I was sure that I would find lots of bad things out there. Um, but essentially, it's been linked with decreased heart risk of heart disease, hot flashes, breast cancer, prostate cancer, osteoporosis, memory and cognitive function. The one thing that I did find that seem to go along with perhaps the estrogenic effect on males, as there was one study which showed decreased sperm counts in people. There was, yeah, so... I agree that people ask that a lot, um, but and the sperm counts were still within the normal ranges, and it didn't seem to affect their fertility. And we know that people in Asia eat a lot of soy and don't have fertility issues. Um, so it, you could perhaps extrapolate from that. Um, but I didn't find anything that was really negative about soy. Um, but it does have estrogenic effects, which is why some people have been trying to use it to treat things like breast, can breast cancer and hot flashes. Does that help at all? I know it's a little bit. OK. Yeah. Emma? Oh, thanks. Um, so I was just wondering if there's any literature about, I, I have multiple families who have started their kids on vegan diets from birth, and is there any studies on brain development? Because that's one of the things that I always get worried about, if we're not just providing enough search sure they're growing, but are they developing? I believe there's not really a lot of concern with the brain development. I mean, if they're growing properly and they're performing well on their, and they're still meeting their milestones, um, no, I, I don't believe that there's any concern on that. Mm -hmm. Yes? I know that there's increasing evidence that restriction kids earlier in life and that we've just been given people wrong information with allergy, in terms of allergies. Did you come across anything in terms of moms who follow really restrictive diets and their children developing allergies? I did not, although that's an interesting question. I'm, I'm unsure of that, but you're right. I, I, I don't know yet. Okay. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks for coming.